Well, good morning, uh, and a belated Happy New Year as well. Um, if you have a Bible with you, I didn't get much response there. Happy New Year. Oh yeah, that's better, that's better. Okay, uh, sorry, I feel more affirmed now. Uh, if you have a Bible with you and you want to follow along, uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 13 this morning. Uh, just to tip you off, today is going to be a bit of a sneak preview or prelude to a brand new preaching series that we are launching properly in two weeks' time, working through the entire book of Acts from beginning to end. And so uh, in a few months' time, we might get back to Acts chapter 13, uh, but I'm just going to do a standalone talk today just to kind of prime the pump. Now, I don't know if you ever read the book of Acts. I heard a few whoops, so uh, you seem reasonably positive about that, so that's good. Uh, It's an absolutely stunning book, Uh, and so many of the themes that we're going to find in the book of Acts, I do believe, are highly relevant for where we are at as a church, as we're going to be seeing over the next few months. It's got a tremendous amount to teach us about the Holy Spirit's equipping power and how to try and engage a culture that's pretty hostile to the good news about Jesus and how to persevere through opposition, the crucial place of prayer and what genuine community looks like and how to go about building it, not to mention mission and pretty rampant multiplication. It's a phenomenal book. And really, my hope and prayer, as we get inspired and challenged week after week, is that increasingly the stuff that we are reading and hearing about wouldn't merely be theory or simply words on a page, but stuff we're experiencing in our own lives and witnessing with our very own eyes. All that being said, all I want to do this morning is simply read a very short passage, just three verses, draw out two very simple points with a few sub-points underneath, and then try and use it to illustrate where I believe we're at a church, where, where we're at as a church right now. So Acts chapter 13, hopefully you found it, I'm going to read just the first three verses. Here's what it says. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, who was from Cyprus, Simeon, who was from North Africa and was called the Black Man, Lucius from Cyrene, Menean, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul, who, if you're familiar with Saul, you know is a Roman citizen from Tarsus. Previously, he was a high-ranking Pharisee. Now, just to pause there for a moment, I don't want you to miss how there was this stunning diversity of backgrounds right there in the leadership team of this church in Antioch, which kind of made phenomenal sense because Antioch was this pretty cosmopolitan city, a bit like Birmingham is. And just to put it out there so you know, we as a church are also totally committed to building a church here and raising up leaders that reflect something of the diversity in our city as well. Back to the story, verse 2. One day, as these men were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I've called them. So, after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. Now, if you're a type A, get stuff done kind of person, 
What's described in these verses has got to be one of the most frustrating eldership team meetings in the history of all humanity. The team pitch up, kind of asking the question, look, we haven't got the email, what's the agenda tonight? The answer comes back, we are simply going to treasure Christ together. Yes, and, no, 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 that's it. We're just going to treasure Christ together. We're going to get together, we're going to adore Jesus, and we're going to pray. Yeah, okay, but don't we need to establish a few more leaders? I mean, we're pretty stretched right now. Probably we do need to do that. Surely we also need to talk about our mission strategy. Hopefully we might get round to talking about that at some point as well. And what are we doing about our home groups? I mean, I've heard about this revolutionary small group thing they're doing down the road in Jerusalem. I think we should send a delegation of people to look and see what they're doing. Maybe invite some of them over to do a conference for us and start rolling it out in the church here. That's not what they do. What are we doing tonight? We're just going to treasure Christ together. Really, that's all that was happening. These men are in a room. They're the key leaders in the church of Antioch, and they are not talking business in a way that you would perhaps expect. Here are my two points. Number one, more than anything else, they prioritized devotion to Jesus. Number two, it resulted in phenomenal multiplication. In a nutshell, that was the story of the first church. Devotion to Jesus, phenomenal multiplication. And as we're going to see, in many respects, that's also been the story of Church Central over the years, up until now. And as we enter a brand new year, 2017, I, for one, am believing that this will continue to characterize our life together this year as well. So let's try and unpack this a bit more. Let's start by the prioritizing of devotion to Jesus. Now we're shown in this passage how they went about this, how they expressed their devotion in at least three separate ways. They expressed their devotion to Jesus by worshiping, by praying and fasting, and by obeying what he says with courageous faith. Let's start with worship. In short, worshipping is simply to ascribe value to something. In essence, that's what worship means, to ascribe value, to exhort, to make much of something or someone. Now, you may or may not realize this, but you were actually designed by God to worship, and you cannot help but do it. I tell you, every single person in this room right now is worshipping something at the very core of their being. It's like there's a throne in your heart and something sits there and you serve that thing. Because that's how we were wired, that's how we were designed by God. We can't help but do that. We were created by God to worship which I guess is why grown men can be affected by what 11 men in a field do with a ball, or why teenage girls can camp outside an arena for several days to get a front row view of Justin Bieber. Ultimately, we want to adore something that we believe is greater than us. 
We want to make much of something that we think is bigger or more significant than we are. At the end of the day, we were created by God for adoration. And here in Acts 13, we see adoration going to the place that it rightfully belongs. They are simply treasuring Christ. They're worshipping Him. Now, just by way of an aside, they're not worshipping Him because Jesus needs to be worshipped. It's more a case that our hearts desperately need to be reconnected with our Creator. It's not like Jesus is sitting up there in heaven, he's had an atrocious week, he's feeling a bit demoralized and down, and he's just so incredibly grateful for this group of five or six guys in Antioch who are sitting there saying really kind things about him. It's not like he desperately needs the encouragement, or he needs a bit of praise to build up his self-esteem. That's not how it is. Rather than Jesus needing to be worshipped, It's more a case that you desperately need to worship rightly. Because at the end of the day, everything that you worship, everything that you give, your energy, your effort, your attention, your devotion to, that's not Him, will in some way end up betraying you as you seek to serve it. Which leads me really to the second way that they're prioritizing devotion to Christ. They're worshipping, they're ascribing value to him. Then secondly, we see they're also praying and fasting. Now, if you were to do a quick Google search of fasting, please don't do a quick Google search of fasting right now because it may be a distraction, but later on you can. If you were to do that, you'd find it's rarely referenced in any type of spiritual way nowadays. It's more a case of our health. Intermittent fasting is going to make us impervious to disease or it's going to help us lose weight. It's kind of a dietary thing. But that is not the point here in Acts 13. The leaders of the church weren't on some kind of new dietary fad. No, they're showing their devotion to Jesus by ascribing value to him and by living in such a tangible way to say Jesus is better than In this case, he's better than food. We're not going to eat. So that the hunger in our guts reminds us that he is better even than eating. Really, this is a vital lesson that I believe needs to be cultivated more and more in each one of our hearts. Jesus is better than anything and everything. Because when Jesus is better than everything else, then everything else gets put into its right place. You see, the sin in our hearts will often have us searching around for saviors that aren't Jesus. And so we end up worshipping created things that were given to us for our enjoyment rather than the creator of them all which ends up leading to all kinds of relational conflicts and eventually slavery to those things. But if Jesus is better than, then I don't need Helen, my wife, to take the place of Jesus. If Jesus is better than, then I don't need money 
to be Jesus to me. If Jesus is better than, I don't need my friends or popularity or my work or my hobby or Instagram, Snapchat or Facebook. I don't need them to be better than because Jesus is better than them all. If you don't quite know what I'm saying, I'm saying I don't need any of those things to save me. I can have money and it not define or control me. I can love and serve Helen and not demand that she fills places in my heart and head that ultimately only my Creator can. In fact, let me tell you how Jesus himself taught on this subject. Matthew 13, 44, he says, very famous passage, the kingdom of heaven, that's the place where the rule of Jesus is seen and experienced. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. Get this, in his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned in order to get enough money to buy the field. Now, did you hear that? There is something huge happening in that passage. Jesus is so much better than everything else It's like this guy finding treasure in a field, and then in his excitement, in his deep joy, not in reluctance, not in, I sure hope this works out for me, in his joy, he sells everything he has in order just to gain that field. He's like, who cares about all of this other stuff? Just give me the treasure in the field. Listen, Jesus is so much better than everything else that the loss of everything for the gain just of him is infinitely worth it. In the same way, to have everything else and not have him makes everything else eventually sterile and dry. I mean, come on. If you honestly try and evaluate your own life, Deep down, you already know this is true. Without Jesus, we are just stuck on the treadmill. Do you know what I'm saying? You just run and 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 run. And it's exhausting. But at the end of the day, you didn't really go anywhere. I mean, think about it. It's like since your earliest memory you were waiting for the next thing. Since your earliest memory, you couldn't wait to get into primary school. And then you couldn't wait to get out of primary school and into secondary school. And then you couldn't wait to get out of secondary school and into college. And then you couldn't wait to get out of college. You couldn't wait to drive a car and own a car and own a different car. You couldn't wait to start work and then to get the next promotion and then change career. You couldn't wait to get a new mobile phone, the latest trainers a new TV, and then the latest mobile phone, the latest trainers, the newest TV. You couldn't wait to buy your first home, then extend your home, then move to a better home. You couldn't wait to get married. You couldn't wait to have kids. You couldn't wait for your kids to get out of your house, right? Your whole life is marked by what's next, what's next, what's next, what's next. It's just relentless and it's driven by this 
deep-rooted dissatisfaction at the gut level because only Christ can fill that gaping hole inside you. Ultimately, what your soul desperately longs for isn't more vibrant relationships or a wider screen or more sex or a better phone or a bigger pay packet or the next move. Ultimately, what your soul needs is to be reconnected or more deeply connected to its creator. Now, here's what's great. When you just consider the invitation that Jesus gives us here, yeah, there are probably things we could do with stop doing. There are things we probably should start doing a bit more of. But don't miss the invitation. Work on your joy. Yes, there's challenge but it is always and everywhere preceded with this breathtaking invitation. I want you to be honest. When you think Christianity, are you thinking in the box of simply fill your life with things that stir your affections for Jesus? Because that's the invitation. At the end of the day, what drives all of this adoration of Jesus Christ a love for Jesus, and absolutely blown away by completely and utterly captivated by Him. That's the driver. If you want to work on anything this year, it's not getting more of this or more of that or changing this or changing that. It needs to be loving Jesus more deeply. More than anything else, That is where we need to be focusing our energy and our effort, our dreams and our ambitions. How do I do that? Well, very simply, you need to find ways of filling your life with things that will stir your affections for Jesus. I don't know what those things are. Okay, well, in some sense, as a church... You may not have grasped this, but we are desperately trying to help you with that. And so when we gather together like we are this morning, more than anything else, what we're trying to do is adore Jesus together. That's why we're here. The whole reason we're here isn't for the coffee. Sorry, for the refreshment team. I mean, you do an important role, but ultimately it's not about the coffee or the social side. Or trying to find a platform for my particular ministry. Or even to get my needs met. All of those things are secondary to adoring Jesus together. To make much of him. To worship him. To learn more about him. To stir one another in devotion to him. To experience him. To encounter him. To come to him. And then to go and obey him wholeheartedly. Which I think is why Hebrews 10 verse 25 urges us not to give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Listen, my appeal to you this year is to prioritize gathering with the church Sunday by Sunday. 
join a life group. You know, I've lost count the number of people who say, oh, I just feel a bit disconnected from the church and I'm struggling to, to find relationships in the church. Are you in a life group? Oh, no, it's a bit of a hassle signing up and it's kind of busy and it's hard finding a night that I can do it. Join a life group. If you want to encounter Jesus more, if you want to grow in your faith, join a life group. Come to the river this evening in this room. I mean, it couldn't be easier. You know how to get here. We're doing it twice this term. So we want to find more and more opportunities, more and more contexts to fuel devotion to Jesus. Whenever we gather to pray, and believe you me, we want to do more of that this year. Whenever we gather to pray, be there to express devotion to Jesus and don't wait for official prayer meetings. Just grab a few people, pray with them. And even more than that, when you gather, come with an expectation that you are going to meet with Jesus and then express your devotion to him in the way you serve and the way you worship and the way you listen to and apply the teaching and the way you look out for others and seek to encourage them. Listen, more than anything else, when we gather like this, we are trying to help fuel your devotion to Jesus. But really, to make the most of this opportunity, I think you've got to do a bit of honest soul-searching. I want to encourage you over the next few days, why don't you just pause for a moment, get somewhere quiet, reflect on this whole thing a little more deeply. Ask yourself, what is currently uppermost in my affections? Maybe don't talk that way, it's a bit grandiose. Basically, I'm saying, what am I living for? What is most important to me? Maybe you don't know. Let me give you a few hints to help you find out. What do you daydream about? Where do you find your mind most naturally wandering? Last quarter of an hour, where has your mind been wandering? What do you prioritize when you're planning your diary? What, what do you make most sacrifices for? No, I'm busy, I can't do it. Oh, that's come up. Oh, I'll go there. What do you spend your spare money on? What do you think, if I just had that, then I'd be happy? If I just had that, it would solve everything, it would change everything. Because probably that's an indicator what is uppermost in your affections. And then I want you to be honest. Are there ways that you need to confess to Jesus, Lord, you haven't been most important to me. You haven't been most uppermost in my affections. This other thing has. Will you forgive me? And then think about how you can fuel stronger adoration for Jesus. Ask yourself, what stirs my love for him, my joy in him, my affection for him? And then simply fill your life with more of that stuff. I mean, that's not a bad deal right there. What makes your heart feel most alive in Jesus? What causes you to experience most joy in him? Okay, fill your life with that. That is a cracking invitation, and I would humbly suggest you'd be pretty daft to ignore it. 
And then, moving on, because there is more, I want you to see that out of this place of adoration, out of this place of worship and Jesus being better than, the leaders here in the church in Antioch, they are in a great position to hear God. Verse 2, one day as these men were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. Now this was a big deal. I mean, Barnabas and Saul were key leaders in the church. It was going to leave a huge gap in the Antioch church. But they obeyed in faith. Verse 3, so after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. That's my third point. They expressed their devotion to Jesus by obeying with sacrificial faith. And as we're going to be seeing, as we work our way through the book of Acts this year, their radical obedience to the call of God results again and again in the church multiplying dramatically. It resulted in phenomenal multiplication. A guy called Daryl Bock, who's written an entire book on the book of Acts, he makes this comment about these particular verses. He says, often God guides us in ways that are mysterious. But in this case, the community, sensing God's clear direction, put its weight behind an outreach far beyond its own walls. God loves churches that look beyond their own needs. One wonders where the church today would be if Antioch had not been led to look beyond its own community and city limits to do evangelism. He concludes, everything about Acts shows us that its impetus is toward the church's call in mission. We build churches not just to go in for worship, but also to go out with God's heart for people. Now don't forget, before we're ever called to go, we're invited to come. It all begins, it all starts with devotion to Jesus. And devotion to Jesus expressed in worship and prayer and fasting and obedient faith, that inevitably leads to multiplication. Out of a place of deep joy and excitement in Jesus, the church grows and multiplies. It just does. The church started in Jerusalem. Here we are today worshipping Jesus in Birmingham. That is quite some multiplication. And it didn't really jump from Jerusalem to Birmingham via Antioch. No, it spread across the world, spread across the globe, and it is still spreading today. That explains why we're here. It also explains some of the seemingly foolhardy and crazy things that we have done as a church over the last 20 years. I mean, why? 20 years ago, three months after getting married, did Helen and I move to plant this church with no team, no money, and not a whole lot of leadership experience? I mean, craziness. And then why? When we're looking to establish the church, do we then send teams to plant a further five churches in the first seven years? In more recent times, why did we choose to send some of our best people to start this site? 
and then go again when we were still stretched to start a site up in the north of the city. And whilst trying to establish three sites, why do we then send a team again from this site primarily to plant Redeemer Church down in Northfield? And then more recently to send a team to Beirut. Why in our south site? When things were getting pretty comfortable, did we change things and shake things up and go to two meetings there? In the last few months, why buy a building that in all honesty is bigger than we currently need and at the same time encourage people to sacrificially give to fund it? Why do that? Why, as you heard the news just before Christmas, are we releasing Andy from just leading this site to more and more be released to, to go to the nation, something that he's already doing, but freeing him up to do that more and more. Why are we redeploying Owen and Anna O'Brien to leave leading our south site to come and take on leadership of the site here? I mean, why rock the boat? Why keep changing things? I mean, what would compel us to do such potentially foolish things? What compel us to shrink the church, to get rid of a whole ton of resources, to say goodbye to people that we dearly love? Well, I've already alluded to some of the reasons. Let me read you a quote, if you don't believe me or Daryl Bock. Let me read you a quote by a guy called C.H. Spurgeon, one of the great preachers of the last few centuries. He said this about the Christian church. He said, the Christian church was designed from the first to be aggressive. It was not intended to remain stationary at any period, but to advance onward until its boundaries become commensurate with those of the world. It was to spread from Jerusalem to all Judea, from Judea to Samaria, and from Samaria unto the uttermost part of the earth. Listen to this. It was not intended to radiate from one central point only, but to form numerous centers from which his influence might spread to the surrounding parts. If you want to know what we're about as a church, it's kind of that. We're not content to settle and remain stationary. We are going to keep on advancing forward, looking to grow in influence in this city, the surrounding areas, and to the very ends of the earth. And it's all fueled by devotion to Jesus. And so, you may be relieved to hear this year we're not going to bombard you with loads of new goals or some funky new vision statement. Though we still very much want to see Jesus, the most talked about person in Birmingham. We want to be for the good of this city. More and more, we want to impact other nations with the good news about Jesus. And the vehicle we're using to get there continues to be our different sites. Now, I don't want you to get confused about this. Often I chat with people and they say, yeah, the vision of Church Central is multiple sites. No, it's not. Our vision isn't to have more and more sites It's to see Jesus, the most talked about person in Birmingham. It's to be for the good of our city. It's to impact nations. Other people say, well, the mission of Church Central, that's more sites, isn't it? The end goal, more sites. No, it's not. Our mission isn't to have more and more sites. It's to reach more and more people with the good news of Jesus, making disciples of them as we go. 
It's important to see that meeting in different sites is the vehicle, it's the strategy that we are using to help fulfill our much bigger vision and mission. The end goal isn't more sites, it's what the sites enable us to do. As Spurgeon put it, we're not simply looking to radiate from one central point only, but to form numerous centres from which our influence might spread to the surrounding parts. And so this year, we're looking to strengthen each of our sites, to release more responsibility to our site teams, to better work out our vision and mission on the ground. Now, we're going to share a bit more about that. We're not going to get into the nitty-gritty right now. We're going to share more about this at Forward on the 5th of February. Again, in this room, in the evening, 5th of February. But for now, I just want to try and keep it as simple as I can. This year, as a church, we are looking for way more devotion to Jesus and we're believing for way more multiplication. Much more devotion, much more multiplication. We're looking to fuel devotion as we gather to worship, as we pray, as we fast, as we hear from him. And out of devotion to Jesus, even though it will be costly at times, we're going to keep responding with faith-filled obedience. And as we go, we desperately want to see more multiplication. We want everything we do to multiply. Our kids' work, our youth work, our student work, our work with the elderly, our life groups, our site leadership teams, our serving teams. We want to see financial multiplication. We want to see our Christians Against Poverty work multiply dramatically this year. Our work with Sputnik and the arts, we want to see that multiply. Our influence and impact in the city, desperately want to see that multiply. Our work overseas, much multiplication. And through all of that, we want to see dramatic multiplication of people coming to faith in Jesus. Because at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus. All about him. And helping more and more people to accept the invitation to live lives of devotion to him.